This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast podcast, the final podcast of 2016. I'm Mike Petriello. Joined here with Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Matt, hello. Happy end of the year. Why, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Uh, So this is our last show of the year. We're not going to be here next week. Uh, So first of all, thanks, everybody, for listening. We've got some good feedback. I had someone say they wanted to come up to me at the World Series in Chicago and uh, say they enjoyed the show. So lots of cool stories like that. So very much appreciated. Uh, I think today, you know, there's not a ton of hot stuff, hot stove stuff going on right now. So we kind of came up with uh, Matt and I both did some of our favorite StatCast plays of the year and StatCast players of the year. Uh, so I think it's a good opportunity to kind of look back at, at the interesting stuff we learned this year. And some of it's putting numbers to cool plays we would have noticed anyway. And some of them are plays we never would have noticed without the numbers, which I think is kind of a cool combination. For sure. Right. So we've got a couple of plays of the year. We've got a couple of players of the year. So um, I think, you know, Matt's first play was actually one that stood out a lot this year wouldn't you say go for it and it was on opening day it was on opening day opening day of the season third inning of the Rockies first game uh not at Coors Field although uh, any year on list for us without having a Rockies play in it would feel you know (laughs) somewhat incomplete Carlos Gonzalez hit a home run off Zach Greinke at 117.4 miles per hour and it would stand all year as not only the hardest hit home run of the year but the lowest launch angle home run at 14.2 degrees. Could you say this was the home run of the year, right? Based on based not only on the cool stack cast stuff, it was the tops on two different stack cast metrics, but a star hitter off a star pitcher on opening day. Making, right? Not just that, the star pitcher who was last year's big free agent acquisition. In his debut for the in team. In his debut for the <laughs> team. It had everything, and it stood up the entire season, which is kind of amazing. 117 miles an hour off the bat. 14 degrees, right? So I think that's not the lowest of all time. I think last year uh, Stanton had one that was like 11 degrees. I mean, you call it a frozen rope. That's what a frozen rope is. And last year Stanton also had two home runs that were slightly harder hit than that. One one home run, one that was like 120, and one was 118 plus. And what we've learned is that the hardest hit balls don't usually leave the park, right? Because you got to get a little bit of loft, a little bit of elevation. And uh, if you square the ball up that well to actually make that kind of solid contact, a lot of them are line drives, you know, or, or singles. This or, is actually kind of impressive. Balls. Right, right. Yeah, in fact, you know, this is actually one of the cool lessons, and this is something that, that Tom Tango brought to light, is basically like at some point, you know, when it comes to exit velocity, there's diminishing returns because, as Mike said, you when you hit it that hard, it's because you're hitting it squarely on the barrel of the bat and you're not getting any loft on it. So the hardest hit ball on record is a four six three double play hit by Carlos Stanton. So it's almost good to ever so slightly miss hit it, like to get the ball a little bit under, uh, because as we said a million times, there's no slug on the ground. It's like that's like the saying of the year, right? Uh, so your next throw, your next throw, your next play, I think is uh, this is a pretty obvious one, right? Well, I certainly had to make you know our quote unquote list here, our discussion, which was uh, also in April, April twentieth, uh, when Aaron Hicks unleashed a throw to home plate to throw out Danny Valencia at home, a hundred and five point five 
miles per hour. There have been like a few moments in StatCast where like basically the baseball world took notice of a StatCast thing, and I would say that that probably takes the cake thus far. That is that is harder than any pitch that has ever been tracked. Uh, you know, in, in in the recent years by technology, I think 105.1 uh, was Aroldis Chapman we had this year, and that's the hardest throw. Now, obviously, Aaron Hicks was a lazy fly ball to left. He was able to circle around back, get his momentum behind him. So I'd love to know what Aroldis Chapman would do. 108, 110, like what's the upper limit there? But it, it was really cool. And my favorite part about this play by far it was on target. It was an accurate throw. I can't tell you how many times, like in the playoffs, we tweet out, "Oh my God, Jackie Bradley, 102 miles an hour," and it was like 10 feet over the catcher's head, and people would say, "Who cares?" This ball was right on target, 247 feet, basically a strike to get Danny Valencia. One of my favorite plays. Yeah, year. it was it was something. I mean, Aaron Hicks, you know, as a high school high schooler, was a prospect as a pitcher and a hitter. He used to he touched the high 90s on the mound. So he has been known for a long time for having an elite throwing arm and just the perfect combination of circumstances that allowed him to do what basically, you know, we've talked about on the show for a, a quote unquote pull down, which is like a pitcher drill for maximizing velocity. We've seen some of the top pitchers, you know, hit, you know, 107, 108, uh, doing a quote-unquote pull-down, and that's essentially what, what Aaron Hicks was doing in this situation. So we each picked three plays. Matt went with Carlos Gonzalez home run, and then Aaron Hicks 105.5 miles an hour. Matt, what is your third play? The third play actually took place in the NL wildcard game. It was sort of this perfect confluence of events that had that brought in all sorts of weird uh, stack cast like tidbits to it. And it was when Brendan Belt uh, hit a deep line drive a barrel uh, to deep center field. In a scoreless game. In a scoreless game. Sixth inning, and a wild card game. Syndergaard and Bumgarner are pitching in a, it's a classic pitcher's duel. Man on, man on second, two outs. Drives one to deep center field. Curtis Granerson playing out of position in center field. Basically only playing in center field out of necessity. And basically, I think that he made this catch. I think it's part of the reason why the Mets could think he can play. Because of this one catch? <laughs> the ball had an expected batting average of 971. It's a hit 97% of the time. Um, and Granderson went straight back and caught it full speed, just like right in front of the wall, banged hard into the wall, hit the ground. People thought it might be hurt for a second. You know, he came up, you know, sort of dramatically holding the ball up in the air. It was, you know, Brandon Belt rounding first base, slams his helmet to the ground. It was crazy. It's my, this is my favorite part of this. I'm looking at your notes right here. No Syndergaard allowed four barrels in the game, right? And, and we've defined barrels, balls that have uh, characteristics of ending up being uh, 500 batting average, uh, 1,500 slugging percentage. Really, really great hits. He allowed four barrels in the game. All of them were outs, and three of them were outs by Curtis Granderson. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's sort of when I went back and looked at that game, it made it seem like a little bit less of a pitcher's duel than we originally thought, because Syndergaard, in many ways, got hit harder that game than he'd been hit he had a bunch of strikeouts, but he got hit harder that game than he'd been in most of his starts all year. Four battles. Like, I think the season high for any pitcher this year in a game was five, you know, and he gave up four. And, you know, that happened like 10 times all year where someone gave up four barrels in a game. So it was really one of the most, uh, it, it's kind of viewed as being one of the better pitched games of the year. And it was sort of. I mean, but... for context, Noah Syndergaard allowed 14 barrels all season, all regular <laughs> season. Him. And he allowed four in that game. So Curtis Granderson, uh, he had some interesting statcast data on his home runs, right? Yes. Well, he's, this is a, this is this is my way of segueing to to Mike smooth segues on this show. Um, Curtis Granderson, an interesting statcast player for a another reason. He had five home runs with a launch angle of greater than forty degrees this year. So like just complete moonshots. No other player in baseball had more than three. Curtis Granderson is just a fascinating player, and he's going to be if he plays center field next year. That's an entirely different topic. Uh, So those are your three plays. Here's my three plays, and the first one came from game one of the NLCS. 
Andre Ethier comes up and hits a home run. Now, first of all, it was a home run off a lefty. And Andre Ethier hadn't hit a home run off a lefty in about three years because Andre Ethier simply cannot hit lefties. And so I remember when this happened, people were like, oh, my God, Andre Ethier, you know, missed the whole season with a broken leg. He's really coming up big. He's stepping up against the lefty. And it's true. He hit a home run. But that ball went out at 98 miles an hour, which isn't that hard for a home run, at a 43-degree launch angle, which is extremely high for a home run. Uh, that's a combination that does not go out. So all season long, when batted balls had 98 miles an hour with 43 degrees launch angle, hitters were one for 40. And the one hit was a double. And I remember I watched the video. It was a, a total BS double because the outfielder completely lost it in the sun. Yeah. There is no way that that ball turns into a hit, much less a home run, except Wrigley Field, the wind was blowing out. So Andre Ethier, hero, yes, but he had a little bit of help. And it's the kind of thing I don't think you would know before if you couldn't put it into the context of look how many times that ball was a hit just about never, ever, ever. It was pretty it was pretty amazing. It was like one of the coolest little like takeaways, factoids, if you will, of the uh, 2016 postseason. Yeah, it was a cool story for us. Uh, my other two plays of the year, I don't think we've really talked about either one of these on the show. They're both they're both stolen base attempts. All right. So I thought this was interesting. Obviously, we can track lead distance. How far off of first base uh, is the runner when he's trying to steal? So who had the shortest lead on a successful steal of second? Who was the closest to first base? You're not surprised to find out it's Billy Hamilton. He was only 6.7 feet off of first base, so he still had like 83 feet to go. I watched the video this morning. He's still chatting up Paul Goldschmidt uh, when Robbie Ray pitches, and he still makes it. And so when I first thought that, I said, well, okay, that's cool, but if it turns out the catcher just airmailed the throw, you know, it's not really that notable. The throw was perfectly fine. Tuffy goes switch, made an on-target throw, 77.2 miles an hour, which is, you know, average-ish. It's not great, but it's totally fine. And so I think to myself, you know, what does 6.7 feet mean? Well, the average lead distance on a successful steal of stolen of second is 11 feet, right? So what this goes to show you is that, obviously, Billy Hamilton is amazing. Now, Robbie Ray had a little bit of a slow release. Uh, he brought his knee all the way up to his chest. So Billy Hamilton gained 12 feet during his delivery. So he went from 6 feet to almost 20 feet before the ball left his hand, and then obviously he gets the top speed. He's Billy Hamilton. The catcher is no prayer whatsoever. But I thought that was really fascinating. He looks like a six and a half feet off the base, and he still steals it. That's cool. This is why Billy Hamilton is awesome. Billy Hamilton is awesome. Um, and then when I thought about that, I thought to myself, well, I have to go the other direction now, right? I want to know who got the furthest off the base and still didn't make it. So, uh, as you know, you weren't surprised to hear that it was Billy Hamilton. You're probably not going to be surprised to hear that it was Ryan Howard. Ryan Howard got 19.2 feet off of first base uh, against the Cardinals, and he still got thrown out, right? So Billy Hamilton had 83 feet to go. Ryan Howard had about 70 feet to go. Uh, and I thought this was really funny. I was, I was watching this one this morning, too. The Phillies radio broadcast actually noted that he had a big lead off of first base and uh, that they're not holding him there. And the Phillies broadcast goes, there's a pretty good chance he won't try and take the bag. Do you know why that is? Forget successful steals. He hadn't attempted a steal in more than five years. Since June of 2011, the Cardinals, uh, to put it frankly, were not showing him respect. They were not worried about it, and for good reason. <laughs> he, he went because he was so far off the bag. Uh, it wasn't even a great throw by Yadi Molina. It bounced. Colton Wong made a nice play, and uh, he was he was still out. So I, I'm not dumping on Ryan Howard. It's not his job to steal bases. He's a slugger. Uh, I just thought that was amazing, the difference between the, the distance for Hamilton and Howard. I, I gotta actually, in some ways, I have to kind of give... Uh... Give a little, you know, tip of the cap for, to Ryan for, Howard. For, yeah, for try, I like that. Even trying to stick his hand in the cookie jar, got it slapped away, but uh... it, it was worthwhile. So those uh, plays of the year, my three and Matt's three, 
Uh, feel free to tweet at us. Let us know if you have any other ones. But I thought those were fun. Obviously, a lot of plays this year. We're going to go to players of the year. And, you know, we should we should quantify this for a second. Obviously, we're going to talk about players. It's not necessarily the best players. Obviously, Chapman would be up there, Stanton, guys like that. Just, like, interesting players. Guys who, you know, stood out to us uh, for stat-casting reasons that you wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Uh, so, you know, I've got a couple. Matt has a couple. I'm going to go first this time. The first one for me... Blaine Boyer. Now, you're fascinated. I bet you half the listening audience is trying to figure out what team Blaine Boyer pitches for. And uh, it was the Milwaukee Brewers this year. 66 innings for Blaine Boyer. 395 ERA out of the bullpen. Just, you know, fine, perfectly adequate and acceptable. Here's the thing about Blaine Boyer. In those 66 innings, he struck out 26 guys, right? That's a number that's, you know, three and a half strikeouts per nine, 9% strikeout percentage. That's the kind of number you'd expect in like 1905, right? And yet... He managed to survive a three a three ninety five ERA. You think that that kind of a strikeout rate would be like an eleven ERA? Now, why is that? Randy Jones won a Cy Young award with a. Uh, with well, a times have changed a little bit. Now, how does Blaine Boyer, who literally cannot miss bats, how does he survive in baseball? He only allowed two barrels all year long. He had a one percent barrel uh, per ball in play rate. Uh, and of guys who had a minimum one hundred balls in play, that was the second best all year. Xavier Cedeno had zero. But I thought that was interesting because we talk a lot about whether limiting contact is a skill. I see something like that, and I think, yeah, it, it might be. Not only is it not letting the ball be hit hard, but not letting it be hit hard in the right direction. This guy lets guys hit it, but you know they're not doing damage on it. I thought that was interesting. For sure. No, he's. I mean, for those I share a cube with Mike, so Mike talks about Blaine Boyer ad nauseum. I've heard, <laughs> heard this before. <laughs> and, the public now is aware. Okay, I, I could. I could already feel how bored you are by Blaine Boyer. Uh, the next guy uh, we have definitely, talked about. Definitely not boring. We have talked about Byron Buxton. I am all on board the Byron Buxton train. Uh, you know, obviously the speed, right? We've talked about the speed a lot. Fastest home the third time all year, 10.69 seconds among righties. Uh, he had the four fastest times, six of the top 10 times. He had the nine fastest home the second time. Uh, and he had the fastest inside the park home run time or fastest home run trot. But it's not just that, right? He also hit 99.4 miles an hour with his arm. He uh, hit a ball 111 miles an hour. We saw him crush baseballs in September. And you talk about a five-tool player. This is what the Twins have been waiting for. Well, and this is one thing we, we we played around with this a little bit in 2015, and something that we probably sh- you know we should definitely revisit is sort of the idea of like quantifying a five-tool player. Um, and he's probably as close as you know. Obviously, you know, I guess Trout, but Trout doesn't have a good arm. So Trout yeah. is like actually, I mean, he is not actually a five-tool player. Whereas like. Buxton may be the closest thing, but of course, you know, you you know, a five-tool player theoretically hits for average, which is the one thing like Buxton hasn't really shown yet. he can do yet. Yet, but you know, this is he's he's the, he's the total package. There's he's probably the most f- fun player to watch for me. Like just in the sense that I haven't seen a, a lot of them, so there's you know, it's there's still a little bit of a novelty to it. Sure, like the most fun player to watch. The most frustrating thing for me is whenever I say something about Byron Buxton, people are like, "Well, the Twins are bad." Like, that's great. He's still very, very interesting to watch, and I think he will be a big part of the next good Twins team. Uh, By final player, you can probably already guess it's going to be. Everybody knows that. I had to go with Seth Lugo, StatCast Hall of Famer Seth Lugo, uh, and his amazing curveball. Of the top 100 curveballs this year ranked on spin, he threw 76 of them. He's only in the big leagues for half the season. Uh, He obviously had the highest spin curve on record at uh, 3498 RPM. He threw 94.9% of his curves at 3,000 RPM or higher. MLB average, 2.2%, right? Seth Lugo, the amazing curveball spinner. I had to include him. Obviously, he was a fantastic uh, story this year. Yeah, for sure. And I I feel like he's the kind of guy that if he can harness the curve a little bit, because it does seem when you watch him, the the command isn't quite there. He actually doesn't doesn't throw it as much as you almost No. It's like 
why didn't you throw anymore? It almost feels like he doesn't have the confidence in it. But maybe if he can get to the sort of that that Rich Hill level of confidence in his curve, he can really be an effective pitcher. Seth Lugo is the next Rich Hill. You heard it here first uh, from Matt Myers. I'm sure that's fine. I mean, that would involve him like basically being out of the game for 10 years. Uh, well, hopefully it's a little smoother than yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, so those are my three uh, cool stack guest players of the year. You've got a, a couple here. What do you want to start with? I will start with probably there's something goofy fun about Adam Rosales. He had 11 of the 25 fastest home run trot times this year. Have you ever seen Adam Rosales at a home run? He's Every time he sprints. On the Padres this year, right? Yes. Okay. So you actually think about that for he a second. He sprints. In fact, he had the fastest over-the-wall home run trot time this year at 15.96 seconds. Now, to give you a sense of that, in April, Billy Hamilton had one that was 16.2, which at the time was the fastest inside, uh, over-the-wall home run trot time of the StatCast era. And like we did a cut-four post about that, and it was like one of our highest traffic things of the year. People were like, this is amazing. Billy Hamilton is fast even when he's doing his home run trot. Well, Adam Rosales actually did it faster than Hamilton did. Now, was it a combination of two things, right? Like, as you said, he did it you know, a bunch of times, but on that play, wasn't it also it barely made it out and it looked like it, it wasn't going to go It was a bit of a weird play in that it like, ricocheted off the Western Metal Supply like thing in the left field at, at Petco. So I think he sort of thought it might have been in play. So he kind of, he, you know, he definitely maybe gave an extra gear. But even still, he had n- numerous times under 17 seconds. So it wasn't like this is just one. This was, this was just one where he got under 16 seconds. I'm glad we know Adam Rosales for something other than being DFA'd back between Oakland and Texas like 40 times like he did a couple years ago. And just to, for one more piece of context on that, that famous and possibly my favorite play of the year, Tyler Naquin's inside the park walk-off home run, his home-to-home time was 16.69 seconds. And mind you, Tyler Wake Naquin is a left-handed hitter. Oh, that matters. Yes, that matters. It does matter. Rosales is not. So basically... He matched Naquin on an in, on what was like an inside the park home run, where theoretically you would think that Naquin was running absolutely as fast as he could all the way around the base. Now you know something about Adam Rosales. <laughs> <laughs> um, my next player of the year is sort of um, an acknowledgement of just sort of a weird career path, which is Matt Bush. Matt Bush, as you know, was the number one pick in the 2004 draft. Basically, was considered by the Padres. Um, Flamed as, out. As a shortstop, wasn't he? As a shortstop, yeah. um, although he had pitched in he had pitched in high school, but everyone pitches in high school. Um, but a shortstop with a great arm, flamed out of baseball, ended up in jail for like vehicular assault, just like a really just like a really sad story. And then it ended up kind of building back up his baseball career, trying to come back as a pitcher, and did, and came back to the major leagues this year, signed by the Rangers, and was like an effective reliever. I mean, he had a 2.48 ERA and a 2.74 fielding independent pitching, which is an indication for a pitcher, like, that's an effective pitcher. And what's amazing about Bush from a StatCast perspective is that he has one of the highest four-seam spin rates in baseball. And that's instantly what made him effective, is that he had this crazy um, spin rate on on the four-seam. You know, as we've talked about before, High spin rate on a forcing fastball is kind of what gives it that rising fastball effect. It makes the ball kind of defy gravity a little bit, and that's where you get a lot of your swinging strikes. In fact, of the pitchers who threw at least 500 forcing fastballs this year, his spin rate was second only to, and I just love the poetry, this the symmetry here, Justin Verlander. Justin Verlander. The number two pick in the 2004 <laughs> Major League Draft. The Padres had long been criticized for passing over to take Matt Bush. But Matt Bush struck out thir- uh, uh, got a uh, swing strike rate of 13.8% on his four-seamer. That's you know upper echelon. You know That's a- higher than people like Craig Kimbrell and Hugh Darvish. It's so, like, impressive. It's, it's impressive. And you know, he's not a star, and he'll always kind of be a bust. But the fact that he's been able to come back and resurrect his career and be a, you know, a, a useful re- a useful reliever is a cool story. I and mean, there's like a very 
specific stat cast element to it. I, I wonder if uh, 12 years is like the longest gap between like a top five pick and his first good season. Right? Quite possibly. That's, that's something else to look up. There's something else to look up. All right. So you have, you have two more players. Uh, I'm interested in both of these guys. Well, the, the one really leads to the next. And the, that, the, the, the first one is Chris Davis. Chris Davis with a K, who, as it, we found out this year, um, hits the ball when he hits it as, as hard as anyone. His, he had the highest rate of barrels per plate appearance in the majors at 10.7%. That is just higher than Miguel Cabrera at 10.6%. So what you're saying is when he steps to the plate, the likelihood of him doing the best thing a hitter can do, hit a barrel, is higher than anybody else in baseball. Exactly. And my fa- the other thing about Chris Davis is he, he's such a fun package because he also has the weakest outfield throwing arm in all of baseball. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think his average is something like 78 miles an hour, yeah, where the, the really good guys average like 97 miles an yes. hour. So I, I think that's a fascinating, like, look what this guy can and cannot do. And he also was... Uh the source of one of the most exciting plays in baseball this year when he hit his third home run of the game and it was a walk-off grand slam home run against the Rangers. And then when he came around the bases, he did like his uh, jump shot and his teammates mobbed him. It was definitely the highlight of the A's season. I, I somehow have absolutely no recollection of that, well, but I'll go, take your go word back for and it. Watch the clip with the better highlights <laughs> of the year. Um, so Chris Davis sort of just emerged as, and I forgot, I mean, the A's trade, who the, I can't remember. Uh, Nottingham, I think, was in that, minor league catcher. I to think. the Brewers, to but the Brewers. I mean, that was at least in the short term, a steal for the A's. And Chris Davis has become like this really interesting, like productive, you know, just he's a slugger, just a, a very good player. Um, and he's sort of a segue to like my, you know, my my bonus player. And, you know, maybe this is a good segue to also talk about things we're looking forward to in 2017. Um, really interesting stat, Looking going back to barrels, as we discussed, barrels is a stat developed by Tom Tango, basically trying to identify the best thing a hitter can do in terms of contact. Um launch angle and exit velocity um in terms of barrels per balls in play amongst players with 50 balls in play who had the highest percentage of barrels on balls in play well i know the answer <laughs> you would never guess it like I, you know I'm, I'm telling you the audience you would never guess it yeah i could probably give you 100 you, you could never guess it in part because he didn't really play after i don't know mid-may or whatever yeah. it was uh, go for it it was david wright david wright yeah david wright who sort of is in to his credit has kind of you know, evolved as a hitter because of his, his various, you know, injuries, name, namely his back injury, where, like, you know, when he was a young player, he was a guy who would get almost 200 hits a year, a lot of doubles, a lot of opposite field power, not a ton, like, basically as many walks as strikeouts. He was, like, a really complete player. And now, because of his back, he's basically now just all or nothing. It, um, yeah, I, he, I can't measure this, but it sure seems like he's going up there swinging as hard as he can just in case he hits something. And when he And when he... He hits it. He hits it well. In fact, his last game this year was a MLB Plus game. That's why I remember it. It was that crazy game, which I think ended with a Curtis Granderson moonshot home run. It's all That's coming right. together. That's right. In that game, Wright had hit a uh, an opposite field, like a home run to like deep right center, and it was like you hadn't. It's not the home run that kind of home kind of home run that David Wright hits anymore. Right. And it was sort of like, wow, maybe David Wright's back next day. David Wright after the season. <laughs> well, he's a very um, different player. He's a very different player. I think he he walks and strikeouts and basically fifty walks or strikes out in like fifty percent of his plate appearances. Um, he's like the three true outcomes king. He's like yeah. he's like a right-handed Rob Deere now. I don't remember if Rob, Rob Deere was left handed or not. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so it's. The reason I say that so he's sort of interesting because another sort of use of barrels to sort of say like, hey, David Wright was actually kind of interesting this year. When we look at barrels per balls in play, Wright was one, Gary Sanchez two, Byung-Ho Park three, Chris Davis with a K four, 
Chris Carter. Chris Carter, uh, one of our guys, five. But by the way, Byung-Hyo Park is interesting on that list because uh, he did not have a good season. You know, he had a couple of total blasts, and then he, uh, I, I believe it was he was playing through a hand injury or something. His numbers cratered, and then he had hand surgery. But I think if you look at that, that shows me a guy who, uh, even though he had a very disappointing first season, can actually make some powerful contact. If he's healthy again, he's a guy I could squint and say, he could be interesting. And so you have Park, and you have Snow, and you've got Buxton, and now they've uh, Mauer. That could be a half-decently interesting Twins lineup if they keep Dozier. Pitching's not there, but you can squint and see that being an interesting team based on stuff like this. Yeah, so you know, along those lines, in addition to maybe the Twins, you know, I mentioned David Wright. What, you know, I'm interested to see David Wright, what he can do in 2017 when he comes back, as limited as he will be. What are some of the things you're looking forward to in 2017? Uh, well, I'm interested to, to, you know, obviously we're going to make some progress with StatCast, right? I mean, we, we've talked about Tom Tango's contribution a lot, and he's been on this show a couple times. Uh, this uh, he's finished. He just finished his first, not even full season with us, I guess, like partial season. Uh, and so I know he, he has big projects this offseason that are really going to help us get to uh, better defensive metrics, right? Like catch rate is something we've talked about a little bit, but we haven't introduced leaderboards yet or anything like that. And I think that's hopefully going to change. And that's a really good start because it's very easy to understand for people like, oh, that ball's a, a hit 90% of the time, but this guy caught the ball. That's really impressive, right? And I think that's like ease of, of understanding is a huge part of making the data useful. Yeah, for sure. Um, as for me, you know, that's actually the one the one person I keep coming back to when I'm thinking about 2017 because I'm really curious about, we talked about him on the last podcast, I'm going to bring him up again, is uh, Lucas Giolito. And I say that because I think he's kind of a test case for what we can learn from small samples in terms of spin rate and velocity. Like, right. You know, we may be able this if if you know maybe we're going to start to see that like spin rate can tell us a lot really quickly if a player is going to be uh, effective. If you go just by body type and uh, repertoire and velocity, you look at Giolito and you think, okay, this guy should be Verlander, he should be Syndergaard, but there seems to be something missing, and it might be spin rate. He, you know, he only got swing strikes on like 3% of his fastballs this year. It was like bottom fifth percentile yeah. or whatever. And, you know, like, again, there could be other factors. Maybe he'll come out and be fine. I'm not. I'm just kind of curious because he might be sort of this first test case where maybe we see instantly if a power, if a quote-unquote power pitcher like that doesn't really have, you know, even average spin rate on his four-seamer, maybe it's like, okay, this is – this is the Nady of all the effect. Maybe he's just sort of like going to be a limited yeah, pitcher. Throws hard, uh, you know, maybe gets more grounders and strikeouts. And so I think that's a big part of why I said I didn't really mind that trade as much as everybody else did. Um, you know, kind of speaking of, of pitches like that, I'm interested to see how many curveballs we see next year. Because we, we kind of saw the return of curveballs this year. I, a player told me this like last year, and I didn't really see anything about it. And then uh, this year, 7,000 extra curves were thrown in baseball. And a lot of them are high spin curves. Because I really think teams are, you know, identifying curveball guys, especially that pitch based on the curveballs. And obviously, we talked about South Lugo, but there's a lot of other guys like that. Rich Hill, obviously, being the huge case. So I'm interested to see if that kind of continues next year with uh, you know teams like the Phillies are huge into it, the uh, Cleveland Indians. Uh, I think that'll be kind of a fun trend to watch if uh, we're going to see more curveballs next season. For sure. All right. So uh, cool. That's our show, and this is our year. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to everybody in the studio and our producer, Danny Wexelman. Happy holidays to all. We will be back in January. Thanks for listening.